Hi everyone, I'm Jess. And I'm Catherine, and welcome to Across the Cline, the podcast where we explore the unusual ways we can meet in the middle. Okay. Hi, everyone. Today, we're excited to have Anisha Gumta and Annika uh, Rose Person with us today. Um, and we'll be exploring concepts around conservation from the perspective of art and ecology. So we'll start out just having our guests introduce themselves. Um, do you want to go first, Annika? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um yeah, thanks so much for having me. My name is Annika Rose Person. Uh, I'm a fifth year PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Organismal Biology at UC Riverside. I'm in Dr. Nicole Rafferty's lab. Um, in our lab, we mostly study how climate change is impacting mutualisms. So we focus on things like plant pollinator interactions. So how plants interact with uh, bee and moth pollinators and butterfly pollinators. Um, but we also do a little bit of work that it goes on be, uh, underground, so interactions between plants and below-ground mutualists like mycorrhizal fungi and rhizobia, um, which are nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So my work really focuses mostly on the pollinator side of things. So um, in the past, I've worked on things like invasive plant species and um, rare plant species and how they're being affected by global change. Um, but my current work is mostly focusing on climate change drivers. So things like early or not drivers, but effects of climate change. So things like early snowmelt and drought and looking at how those impact plant pollinator interactions. Um, I will go next. Um, I'm Anisha Gupta. Um, I am a second year PhD student in the preservation studies program at the University of Delaware. Um, and I have trained as an art conservator. Um, so conserving and restoring cultural heritage objects. Um, and that has uh, traditionally been a very sort of Western Eurocentric discipline in a in a formal way, um, not to say that humans haven't been preserving their stuff um, since the beginning of time. But uh, as we think of conservation discipline today, it really is a Western focus. And so I um, decided to go back to get my Ph.D., um, and think really about our different preservation value systems. So how we um, conserve and preserve uh, cultural heritage objects um, today has been really this, this using Western value systems and there's preservation value systems in all sorts of different cultures. So how can we be much more expansive about the ways in which we preserve um, the objects that are meaningful to us? Cool. Well, thank you to the both of you again for being here. So let's start off with kind of the elephant in the room. What does conservation mean for either the two of you? I can I can start with conservation of art <laughs> and artifacts. Um, conservation really has meant to slow down um, deterioration um, or stop damage as much as possible. And also to sort of um, conserve objects for, we say, conserve objects for at least 100 years. So we're just thinking like a really long time. So on a really basic level, that's what we're looking at. There's many different sort of tenets of what that's meant in the last sort of since the mid 20th century. And that can be 
conservators um, are really interested in minimal intervention. So trying to intervene as little as possible and adhere to the original state of an object. And what that means is what we can dig into because that's really subjective. Um, we also really believe in reversibility. So again, like if you're going to treat an object and do something to it, um, try to make that reversible, um, which also is not, uh, we've kind of come to terms with the fact that that's not really feasible. Any sort of intervention by a conservator is, is going to do something irreversible. Um, you know, really valuing artists' intent and makers and where they fit into the conversation, um, valuing authenticity, uh, and preserving really the physical integrity of the object. So the materiality is really important. Yeah. Um, so conservation biology, which is more in my corner, um, is a is a scientific discipline where we use principles about biology and ecology um, to help us understand how to protect biodiversity. So, for example, we might use concepts about like how species or individuals move around across the landscape, like how well do they travel across the landscape and what resources do they need as they travel across the landscape. So that's the ecology and biology perspective, right? And then use those that information to help us understand how to uh, protect that species the best or how to protect the ecosystem that it's within the best. Um, we also, you know, at a larger scale, think a lot about how species interact with one another. So like what individuals need other individuals of different species, what mutualisms and, um, you know, predation interactions are going on that are, uh, that require the presence of multiple species and that really lay the foundation for how ecosystems function in, in a landscape or in a habitat. Yeah. And so currently we're, we're thinking a lot about global change drivers. Um, as you know, we're all probably aware the the earth is changing on a number of levels. So things like climate change um, and land use change are some of the biggest effects that we're seeing on, um, on individual species. And because of those effects, like climate change, land use change, <clears throat> pollution, things like that, we're seeing a loss of biodiversity. So um, I wrote down earlier that in the last 400 years, over a thousand species have become extinct. And this is between a hundred and a thousand times higher than what we'd expect um, from just random extinction or from kind of non-anthropogenic rates of extinction. So that's a pretty vast number. And one of the big things that conservation is seeking to do is to decrease that rate of extinction. So we don't see such, um, yeah, such a loss of biodiversity moving into the future. Yeah. So, so that's, that's interesting. Like, how do you go about conserving the most species, I guess, or, or basically preventing a case where many species go extinct? Like, do you focus on the individual species? Do you focus on the context, the landscape, um, biodiversity as a whole um, or individuals? And likewise with art, um, you know, do you focus on preserving certain pieces, um, certain uh, eras, certain meaning? Like what uh, what scale do you, do you both kind of address this when there's so many different things to preserve? Um, I can start us off. So uh, that's a really great question and it's getting at one of the biggest issues I think in conservation today is like how do we choose what species to conserve at what level are we doing that and then how are we actually going to enact that conservation so um at kind of a like a focused in scale 
um, it's it's really difficult to choose a single species or an assemblage of species that we want to conserve because so many are threatened by global change. Um, so one thing that we can do is uh, either choose like an umbrella species where one species uses habitat that a lot of other species are going to use. So we kind of use that species as like a um, as a focal species that has certain ecological requirements that are going to also support other species. So by focusing on one, we're protecting many other species. Um, we can also use like flagship species, um, like uh, I'm trying to think, um, the mountain gorilla is a good example. It's a showy charismatic species that people are really gonna get behind. So you'll get a lot of um, support from folks in the community and maybe folks globally. And then there are also surrogate species where we can protect habitat for a single species um, that again helps other species as well, but they're typically not quite as broad spread as like a an umbrella species. So that's kind of how we might choose because we're kind of at a point where we can't protect everything. There are too many species at risk um, and we're going through like what you could call triage where we're just choosing, um, we're making hard choices all the time. Um, and then from a broader perspective, there are a couple different concepts or, or ideas or approaches for how to actually enact conservation on a large scale. So one of them is more, um, it's called like the new conservation approach. And it's more focused on using um, or establishing what, uh, what human importance individual species have and focusing on conserving um, species and habitat types and ecosystem services, things like pollination, for example, that are helpful to humans. And this uses a more capitalistic approach. So it focuses on providing um, like financial incentives to organizations and companies and things um, to prevent ecological degradation and to support conservation. There's another kind of more original uh, conservation approach that's that's more focused on the intrinsic value of ecosystems and of species themselves. And I find myself falling more into that camp, but I think a lot of people are um, are somewhere in the middle where we're thinking that using a combination of like capitalistic incentives for conserving areas and species, and um, while at the same time understanding that species have their own individual, uh, you know, value, right, without considering human influence or their interactions with humans. Um, and then on top of that, there's more and more understanding that indigenous knowledge and indigenous um, autonomy is going to be really critical moving forward in conserving habitats and species and also in helping us decide which species to conserve. That That's really interesting, Annika, especially about umbrella species. I am like fascinated by that and thinking about how we can think about that with our conservation because we don't really have a parallel um, in general, in our conservation, we do what we call preventive conservation, which is like if you think of medicine um, and preventative medicine. So uh, preventive conservation, thinking about preventing um, change and damage before it happens so that you don't need to do conservation treatment. Um, so thinking about the building that you're in and the storage conditions and all of that to, to slow down or prevent damage and deterioration. So preventive conservation works on a much bigger scale, whereas, whereas conservation treatment is one object at a time. So um, preventive conservation has gained a lot of steam in the last like decade or so, um, though in the our conservation programs, only one program offers that as a major. So it kind of gives you a sense of the fact that 
you know, you, it's important, but it's not um, the sort of sexy thing that at an institution you can really sell, you know, you can't put your name, you can put your name on a a storage drawer or something, but donors don't want to do that. And it doesn't get the same sort of um, public interest that like a really cool before and after treatment does. Um, but preventive conservation is really where it's at in terms of scale. But it, it's, I'm just trying to think of like what it would mean to have a parallel to this umbrella species idea, because that seems um, like it has a nice sort of snowball effect of sort of, um, you know, doing one thing that has this long impact on other things. So I'm going to sort of keep that in mind and see, I don't know, in my own work, how to how to apply that. But scale is definitely an issue. But I, I think in art conservation, maybe we have um, really solid sort of ideas about how to evaluate significance and sort of assign value to objects. Um, It's not always something that's uh, explicit, like we're not always talking about it, but when curators and historians are collecting at institutions, they're usually using different criteria. So does this have historic significance, artistic, scientific, um, or like research potential? Does it have a use value? Um, does it have social or spiritual value? So so usually objects are sort of evaluated in those terms and sort of rank higher or lower um, in those kinds of things. Um, also, what could be really important is like its provenance, how rare it is, um, its condition, even like just how like what kind of condition it's coming into and even its interpretive capacity. So there's a there's a lot of work that's been done. Um, sort of talking about these different values and criteria and all of that. But, um, you know, sometimes it also just comes down to like humans picking what's, what's, you know, what they're sort of interested in um, and having big fights at auction houses. Yeah. So a common thread that I'm kind of hearing, is just like determining what's valuable enough for us to focus on, whether it's, you know, mountain gorillas versus a plant that no one's heard of or, you know, the showy before and after restoration videos that we see throughout all of social media versus here's a very fancy drawer to hold stuff and it's important. So um, what kind of, how do you think as like culturally, do we determine values for objects or species or landscapes? And how does that, or who is the person determining what's worth saving, what's worth our investment? Yeah, especially because with all of these different proxies of value um you know do we arbitrarily pick between the intrinsic versus capitalistic versus aesthetic like in what context do these um certain different like different values win over in in a cultural period yeah i mean i i i think that uh there's so many perspectives on that i think it's such a combination of things for art obviously there's museums and libraries and you have curators and librarians who are um, responsible. They have a budget, they buy things, but it needs to be, um, it needs to go through the board of trustees, which is a very different sort of demographic of people, you know, wealthy elite. Um, And so our collecting habits in terms of what gets preserved in institution is totally dominated by, by wealthy elites. I mean, totally a homogenous group of generally white men especially historically. So that says a lot about what you're going to see on gallery walls and what you're going to have access to as the public. Um, Obviously that's changing and that's, that is changing because of societal values shifting. So these institutions are also a total reflection of what the public wants to see and what it values now, especially it should be said for public 
institutions where taxpayers really are paying for this, though that's not always true. Um, but as a as a public, and especially if you're a sort of member of institutions where you're paying money, institutions really do listen to what you have to say about it, about the collection and what you think about what you see on the walls. Um, and there's such a lack of transparency there. A lot of that is because of funding. Like you can get on and you can see um, collections uh, on on websites of museums and stuff, but you're not necessarily going to see everything because they just don't have the resources to put it all out there. And even the level of transparency you can find is sometimes not great. So I'm saying all of this as a little bit of a PSA. If you're listening and you're interested in the museums around you, you know, to sort of just take a look at what they have and how much information they have and maybe um, ask for more. Uh, but but also I, wa- I want to say that conservation is not just for um, institutions, right? We all have things that are dear to us and what we save and pass down or hold on to um, says something about our own selves and what our values are. And those do make their way into more public spaces or they don't, but, but you know, they, they can impact, we can impact one another. So it is sort of, um, a back and forth relationship, but I don't want to leave out um, the fact that we all collect things, and that says so much about who we are um, and uh, you know what it means to us. And so, fifty percent of art conservators actually work in private practice for private clients, so we're not all um, in institutions, and that's you know important to think about too. That's really interesting. I I think your your comment on how collections that are being shown or displayed in galleries. The, the, I don't know, the call for more transparency there is really interesting to me, especially because people are paying for those things with their tax dollars, right? A lot of conservation is funded by government agencies. So people are like paying for what's, um, what's conserved and like conservation actions. And so maybe it makes, I, I, I see a lot of parallels there. Like, I feel like there should be potentially more discussion about what, what individuals feel should be conserved and, um, you know, of, of course, keeping in mind, like scientific concepts that are going to help us understand how to conserve the most species and, you know, essentially get the most for our, for our resources, right. For, for what we were able to actually do in the ecosystem, but, but perhaps it would be wise to start, uh, investigating or asking more folks than just the academic elite, right. Um, a lot of conservation has been based on um, colonialism and has been enacted mostly by um, a, a lot of it has been North American scientists and uh, Northern Hemisphere scientists, scientists, while the global South has been um, underrepresented in ideas about conservation. And there's definitely a movement toward um, including more of those ideas in the conversation about what's to be conserved and how. But um, but I feel like that's going to be one of the biggest pushes moving forward. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Anisha. Oh, well, well, I was just I was just going to say that similarly, like Anika, I think that in our conservation, we are also we're really seeing a push to like, how do we open up this field outside of experts? Because our work is so guided by the curators and librarians that we sort of, you know, work with really closely um, or other sort of internal stakeholders or, you know, professional experts. But like I'm saying, like there's, we, we, this, you know, cultural heritage holds meaning for many different groups. And that of course means community members. And um, 
I think museums in particular really lament that more people don't visit and they're not reaching like sort of the people who are geographically right around them. But, you know, we're really starting to ask the question of why that is. And part of it is relevancy. Like, is this relevant to the people who, you know, you kind of consider your community or your neighbors? And part of that relevancy definitely, I think, comes in in how we preserve things, what we preserve. And so bringing communities into that conversation can be really tough, right? Like who, you know, we use the word community really sort of loosely, but who does that mean? Um, who's, who's, you know, incorporated in, in, in with every object, there's a different community that sort of feels connected to it. Um, so how do we bring people into that without it becoming overwhelming, right? Like if we're asking, if you're in this, if you're living in a major metropolitan area and every, every, you consider everyone in your community, we can't talk to the entire city every time we want to do a treatment, but what are the ways and we can, we can do this community engagement more effectively. And that's where I think conservation, art conservation is heading. Um, but I think part of it, I mean, we're pulled in so many different directions in modern culture. Like there's so many ways to participate in culture these days. So I hesitate to like tell you to do even more. It's hard enough to keep up, but you know, it, it, it would be great to see sort of more um, stakeholders involved though, in different ways. Yeah. I think that's another parallel to, to conservation biology is the more we get people involved, the more we can like understand what they, what people want and need. Um, and I was just going to add that one thing I didn't say earlier about when, how we choose species to conserve is that there's kind of a push and pull between like the intrinsic value of a species being a species, like, oh, this species evolved and has a certain set of traits, therefore this species has value. Um, and then there's kind of a more functional approach where this individual species has these impacts on the ecosystem. Like for example, a, um, a species that provides food for a number of different organisms like salmon or something like that, right? Um, we would consider that species potentially more valuable than other species who are interacting with others. So, but I'm seeing a parallel with that and um, art conservation because of the, like, does this piece of art have intrinsic value because it's art and it's by this famous artist or like this really notable artist, or does it have value because of the impact it has on on people? And like maybe it's connections with other artwork. Yeah, and it's like, how do you um, find relevancy in a, a present moment when the nature of conservation is to like hold on to the past, right? So it, it is really interesting, um, you know, how how do you allow for the public in the present moment to sort of project their own cultural values and meaning onto a piece of art or a species um, that is from a context that they weren't a part of, you know, like, I mean, I think about this with invasive species, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, um, you know, in, at least here in Riverside, right, like, they interact with the donkeys and they interact with species that um, are, are considered non-native um, and, that's like what they really can relate to and find relevancy in because they see them every day. Um, what, but that the ideal in conservation is to like preserve these native species that they're not really like interacting with probably because they're diminishing um, or can't tell that they're native or don't think that they're charismatic, right? So, um, you know, I see parallels probably with that in, in art as well. Um, and so, yeah, how do you go about doing that, both of you? Um, well, for for art, 
um, I think that there's, I think it's such an imperative. So we've got to figure it out. However, however we can do that and whatever makes sense. Cause I don't think it's a one size fits all solution. Um, and I think it's so important that we even ask the question because I'm not sure that we have asked the question, right? Relevancy is coming up more and more these days, um, especially in museums. Like how do we stay relevant as these kind of old stodgy institutions that have been seen as sort of um, from on high telling you what is a good, what is good artwork. Um, but, but we're, we're asking the question, which I think is really good progress. So, um, this always reminds me of one of my favorite conservation articles, um, that came out in 2020, I believe, so like pretty recently by the conservator Jane Henderson at Cardiff, where she talks about, um, you know, we, as I was saying earlier, we have been sort of told to preserve, uh, things for like a hundred years. And instead of doing that, what if we shifted to preserving objects, for the most human interactions. So it still preserves the idea of materiality of an object. You know, if you're going to, if enough people are going to be able to see it, you have to still um, maintain its physical integrity, but it adds in that really crucial component of like, is anyone even, um, is it getting dusty on a shelf in storage? Um, so I really love that as almost a challenge to conservators because we don't always think about the the visitor. We see the visitor or the researcher as an adversary and we're, you know, we really have to to shift that mentality. And I'm sure there's like so many examples of things in collections that, you know, we we collect things with a clear focus on the past. Like this had meaning, it comes into an institution and it always almost becomes frozen or static in the collection. And then we think about the future. Like people in the future are gonna really value this just as much as we do. But we ignore the people in the present. And like one one example I have, which is um uh one that I heard by um the chef Sean Sherman. He's Oglala Lakota indigenous uh chef eh, who has a fantastic sounding restaurant in Minneapolis, one of the uh, a major indigenous restaurant in the country. And um, he talked about how the Field Museum in Chicago saved corn cobs in their collection, but they didn't actually cultivate any of the corn. And so we actually lost it. We lost those species of corn because they didn't use it. They didn't cultivate it. They didn't think of it as um, something active and animate. So to me, it's like, did we actually preserve it or did we sort of preserve an idea. And to me, that idea is one of um, obsolescence um, and the problems with our, I think it shows the problems with our preservation system. So to me, that's like one great example of what happens when we sort of ignore the meaning and the context of an object altogether um, for some imaginary future. That's such an interesting and like direct tie to, to species conservation. And you should really Love yeah, I love that example for this in particular, because I like <laughs> how we could both sort of connect to it. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to the um, the importance of like art and of uh, the environment to, to culture. Like it's really such a both of these things act together to like create culture. Right. I mean, we're kind of talking about the foundation of like what like who we are as people. Um I love that. I just want to say I I that's like exactly it cuz in in art conservation we talk we sort of decry that we don't we bemoan that we're not more involved with natural nature preservation and conservation biology and I think that's exactly it. Like who are we as humans fundamentally and what keeps us alive and to me that is art and that is nature. So yeah, that's really that's wonderful. Um I'm I'm glad to hear that there's more like conversation about integrating these two disciplines because I feel like there's a lot of ground to be covered there it would be so exciting to to pursue that 
um, yeah, we should talk more. Asia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's, you know, as PhD students, there's publications and projects in this for sure. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's interesting, like this idea of like uh, kind of an idealized past, and like like how do we let things evolve? You know, like how do we preserve while still letting them evolve? Like it happens you know, with species, right? We can't just like keep them the same. Like they're, the world is changing. So the selective forces are changing and they're going to change the species. And and so I guess this comes up a lot in conservation biology of just like how how hard do we hold on to like a static species um, and like prevent change? And like in, in art, um, you know, like how do we let pieces of art evolve? And we were talking about this a um, before recording, just sort of like these movements of people, um, you know, doing graffiti on monuments or this just stop oil movement that um, you can expand on Anisha. But these are, you know, directly um, reflections of uh, the present moment imposing selective forces on objects of the past and changing them. And so, like, how do we uh, differentiate like good change versus damage? Yeah, you you bring up thank you. You bring up a really great point. And um I was gonna touch on that briefly, this idea of like how selective pressures are changing. Um, as I talked about, you know, global change is, is influencing the entire globe. And so like a super, super, super conservative approach toward conservation, um, where we're just seeking to like recreate an ecosystem from a thousand years ago or five thousand years ago is just it's completely unrealistic. And it's um, it's going to lead to an ecosystem that's that'll be at risk of degrading as as much as it did in the past. So there's discussion about like how to create ecosystems that are more resilient to global change drivers and like how to select species um, that are, for example, more drought tolerant um, in, in a restoration, for example. Like if you use ecological modeling and this modeling shows you that um, an habitat that you're restoring is going to become you know, it's going to have less precipitation in the future or maybe be hotter in the future. You could potentially choose some species that'll be more resilient to that. So that's um, a little bit controversial, but it's definitely an approach that folks are using. But yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, as someone who doesn't know anything about this, it sounds like it makes total sense, especially since we're not making progress very quickly. That seems crucial. Um in regards to climate change in, in our conservation, we would say, well, that's like artists picking materials that are more archival, uh, which is like a tricky place to be as a conservator. The art practice is not one that I want to interrupt in any way, but a lot of artists are, or some artists at least are interested in making sure that their art is, you know, going to, going to make it what materials they choose. But I would say, I don't know, a lot more artists are like not into this idea. And especially in contemporary art are interested in just sort of, um, they, they might be interested in their art taking, you know, sort of changing how it changes. And if that means it kind of um, dies, <laughs> then that's what happens. And and some art is, is meant to deteriorate. So in, in contemporary art, that's a really great question and sort of philosophical um, uh, there's a lot of philosophical underpinnings and we do artist interviews um, quite regularly as part of our practice with contemporary art to get an understanding of that, of, of, of what artists are thinking about. Sometimes they're fine with 
their material is just being replaced. Um, and sometimes it's really a deterioration process. It's, it's definitely a spectrum. Um, so I don't know. I think that's, it's, it's, it's very heavy handed, which I think it is with um, conservation biology as well. Um, and now I've like, because I'm so interested in this, I've lost the thread of the question. So I'm going to turn it back to Jess. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're exactly hitting it. Um, it was basically just kind of differentiating between like change and damage, right? Because like, bring, mm-hmm. yeah, bringing up those, those movements um, and seeing how they interplay with with the art and make it less. Well, yeah, can, I, I will comment on that more actually because I think I mean a whole whole series of books can be written and maybe have been written about change versus damage. That's such a fine line. It's so subjective. Um, but you know, chain damage has negative connotations. Change doesn't have to, but it also can, I think damage, um, I think conservators, we talk so much about being like scientists. We have chemistry backgrounds. We talk about being objective and neutral, but, and so we, we say, we know, you know, we, we can classify things as damage, but, um, you know, we were talking about significance so if you have an object that like if we think about paper a document and it has historical significance um or it has art aesthetic significance totally changes how we look at like a water stain or some sort of staining that stain could be um coffee spilled by george washington when he was writing this letter and we are 100 not going to get rid of that coffee because anything related to george washington is sacred in this country Um, Or it could be just like a weird brown stain and it's like really horrible and Picasso would have never wanted that on his sketch. Right. So so what is damage is absolutely depends on the context Um, and change and change can be good. I mean, change can it's all about the context of um, is it part of some sort of cultural continuity? Uh, Have our societal values changed? Um, but I think that as conservators, we're not always asking ourselves the question of the difference between change and damage and then our own like positionality in that. Um, so I love thinking about that, especially as a paper conservator where you're working with art and you're working with documents and, um, how you look at, you know, dirt and soil and stuff can change completely depending on who you're looking at it with. I really like that concept of, of like, what is damage? Um, in ecology, we think a lot about disturbances, like, uh, for example, a fire or a flood, those can, those can be disturbances. And so like in California, we have these pyrogenic ecosystems, ecosystems that have evolved to, um, to be essentially good at being burned down periodically. Right. So like an oak woodland forest, for example, um, tends to do best or be most uh, resilient, uh, when it's burned periodically, when it has like a low intensity fire come through, burn out some of the debris, burn maybe little Douglas fir saplings who are starting to grow. And this helps maintain the the ecosystem, right? And a lot of the, the species in that ecosystem are pretty resilient to fire. Um, and the same could be said for a lot of different systems across across the world, really. Um, but, and so that's like a type of damage that we, we want to continue to have, right? And that's um, evidenced by a lot of uh, indigenous burning practices across California that are luckily or gladly they're being re-implemented in parts of California. But, but then we have these, these huge disastrous fires that are instigated by things like um, 
you know, a cigarette falling out of someone's car on the road or something like that. And they're perpetuated by the droughts that we have because of climate change and also by invasive species. They're made much more severe um, and more frequent than they should be. So that's like, you know, a fire, but it's a, a damaging fire. It's a fire that's like not beneficial for the ecosystem. The ecosystem hasn't evolved to be resilient to it. So yeah, like different types of damage and how we respond to them is really interesting. Can I ask a question, Annika, about that? Because I, uh, we were thinking earlier about, or I was thinking earlier about like humans and the role that we play. And, um, you know, I've read many things by Robin Waltimer, who I think talks about biology in a really accessible way. And she talks about how, um, I think in one of her classes, she's a professor in um, one of her classes, she asks students like, are humans good for the planet? And the overwhelming answer is like, no. And she's sort of um, upset by that because we are part of this planet and we don't, you know, how how can students sort of not see anything positive about us being here? And And so I think about that pretty often because similarly with our conservation, we think of people as a risk <laughs> and only like sort of change agents, but not in a good way. Um, but again, it's sort of like, well, who are we doing this for if we're not doing it for other people and for the public? Um, and I kind of think about that with um, and environmental biology as well. Like we are here, we're, we're you know, we're, we're here and we're changing things and, and how can we harness that for good maybe? I don't know. Is that a discussion that you're having as well, um, kind of in your circles? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to your point about Kimmer, I, I was a TA for a course taught by Dr. Laura, Laura Larios, who is just a wonderful teacher and a wonderful person. And she, um, she asked a similar question in the class. Um, like, do you think that, or I guess what she asked was more to the point of like, do do ecosystems or should we, should we create uh, ecosystems that have zero human impact? And a lot of students said yes, but really, I mean, humans are a part of the ecosystem. And I think that's just a big part of um, like this westernized view about what the environment should look like is that humans are separate, like living in condos or something. And then we have an environment or we have like these little conserved areas that are totally untouched by humans but in reality, um, global climate change, you know, nitrogen deposition from from pollution um, is going to affect ecosystems, even in the most remote parts of the world. And um, and also kind of ignores this fact that humans have been and are still interacting with ecosystems on a very intimate scale um, across the across the planet. And and it turns out that one of the more effective ways of conserving large areas of land is to incorporate that idea to like understand that we're still having impacts on ecosystems and to place a lot of value on indigenous folks who are um, living within what um, westernized society might call like undisturbed ecosystems. So for example, the Mabengo Cray or um, Kayapo people in the Brazilian Amazon and like the Northern part of the Brazilian Amazon um, have been living there, you know, for thousands of years and um, an approach that has been deemed to be super successful in conservation is to not remove those indigenous folks' autonomy and making choices about the ecosystem that they live in, um, to make sure that they're able to participate in the global economy in a way that's beneficial for them. 
And yeah, just to really support that autonomy and to make sure that the, the Brazilian government doesn't um, or recognizes their autonomy and their ownership of that land. And that's, yeah, that's proved to be one of the most effective ways to conserve Brazilian uh, Brazilian rainforest, at least. So I feel like incorporating incorporating humans more is going to be more and more important in conservation, um, not just because of like our current presence in ecosystems, but also just because of, you know, if we're interested, like if we're interested in those donkeys who are all over the UC Riverside campus, um, that's going to, you know, provide us with a sense of place and like a sense of excitement about the environment that we live in. And, um, and I feel like that's, what's really needed is just to get people excited and like comfortable in the environment that they're in. Oh, I love this conversation like so much. And a comment I just want to make is that it's kind of ironic what you're saying, Anisha, that humans are like a threat to art conservation because at least art, the way we perceive it is created by humans. So it's like the, you're, the thing creating it is also the threat to it. And I just find that really funny and ironic in a sense. And I guess since we're already on this topic and we've already kind of discussed this throughout our entire com- conversation today is kind of like how has conservation practices either in terms of biology or in terms of art, how how has that historically been grounded in colonialism, if you can think of examples, and how are we going to move away from these Western Eurocentric ideals in the future of these fields? I'll just say that I think the thing that I just talked about is super linked to that question. So, um, so like the idea of preservation was really common or uh, prominent a few decades ago in in uh, northern hemisphere in the northern hemisphere, like in North America, academic circles. And so the idea was like to remove humans from an ecosystem entirely and uh, prevent them from having impact to the greatest extent possible, right? And a lot of what this resulted in is like removing indigenous peoples from their land. This has been happening in the United States from, you know, uh, since it was colonized. Um, And this has led to, yeah, the destruction of like a huge body of cultural knowledge, um, you know, the death of millions of people, et cetera. And so it's been harmful uh, to those cultures, obviously, and to, to millions of people. Um, and I, I think that it's, it's, yeah, it's based on this idea that an ecosystem is better off without people, without people in it at all. And that's just a big part of what conservation has been based on. And so I think, yeah, as I was saying, moving away from, from those ideas that humans have to be separate from, from the ecosystem is, yeah, it's going to be super helpful. I'm not sure if I answered the question. I kind of went off on it. No, you're done. You're done. Um, Well, I mean, and and similarly, colonialism is like inextricably linked to art conservation. Um, Museums, I mean, this is a little challenging, uh, but but basically I would I would say that, first of all, museums have existed for a really long time. And depending on how you define a museum based maybe just as a place that's like a repository for stuff that's valuable to humans and that repository itself is meaningful, sort of under that definition, the first museum can be dated to Japan. Um, And oceanic cultures have had various sort of treasure storehouses. And so we see museums around the world and preservation around the world for a long time. But museums, as we conceive of them today, were 
were a tool of the colonial empire. I mean, these were these were buildings that were created in the colonies as a way to promote sort of this world racial hierarchy um, to the colonized masses, sort of put them in their place and show them where they were in this pecking order. So, you know, museums were a tool of colonialism. Conservation grows out of museums um, quite directly. Um, and so mostly out of the Enlightenment, sort of aristocratic men who in Europe who had cabinets of curiosities and collected stuff. Um, so, so, you know, that sort of um, is really upsetting on the one hand. And in museums, we often ask ourselves, like, well, let's, you know, should we just be burning this to the ground and starting over? Um, but it also sort of asks, begs the question of like, well, can museums change? And can we sort of acknowledge the harm that museums and by extension conservation have done and uh, build something that we can be really proud of. And so I think that's where we're at right now. Um, you know, that's part of my own research of looking at different preservation value systems and introducing new ideas of how we can sort of do this work, um, but do it differently. Because the unfortunate truth is colonialism also created a huge rupture in um, the cultural continuity of many of, of, you know, formerly colonized places. So that means they kind of need this preservation um, of of their objects as a way of learning about their own past because so much of that was lost. And it's such a traumatic event. So it's, it's, it's this kind of idea that like colonialism happened and the best we can do right now is acknowledge what the damage was and what these traumatic events were and how we can work with what we have today, not not ignore that colonialism happened and try to go back to some time of pre-colonialism because that just doesn't exist today, right? That's not who we are as a society. Um, so it's challenging, uh, but but I think um, we're talking about transparency and, and accountability. And I think that's really what it comes down to no matter what part of colonialism we're really discussing. I think that's a really good point. Transparency and accountability. Um, I, I'm not going to like name names and I feel kind of uh, like this is a controversial thing to bring up, but uh, national parks in the United States are kind of lauded as this like great standard of conservation in some circles. And, you know, you'll see these little signposts about like what indigenous folks used to do in these areas um, and like, you know, what plants they used. And they totally gloss over the fact that those people were like murdered and removed from those lands um, because like for in the name of the creation of this national park. Right. And I feel like more transparency and um, accountability maybe in the form of like, you know, land being given back to to those groups or the ancestors of those groups and um, some form of reparations would, would really be more meaningful um, because, yeah, a lot of these a lot of the parks that we we hold so dear and um in a lot of parts of the world are really the product of like genocide and and um the excision of like people from their ancestral lands um so that's another thing that i think is going to make a big shift or is hopefully going to make a big shift in the coming decades yeah and also just the the concept of of um you know you brought this up before anisha i think where the 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 nature of colonialism to go into a place and basically take it and then say that it's in the name of 
them having more knowledge and being able to preserve it better. I think this happens a lot with bioprospecting, right? When when people go to the Amazon and are like, oh, this area could be good for, you know, medicinal value or something, right? Like, first of all, the fact that conservation is then is in the name of ecosystem services for humans, but then also like our potential value for humans and then saying, OK, well, we're going to conserve this area, but this is how we're going to do it sustainably since we have scientific evidence to show that like this is the best way. And and the devaluation of uh, of traditional eco ecological knowledge, um, I think that's a really big problem. Um, but and also I want to uh, add mm -hmm. on that's how much so much like science in mm -hmm. like the global south is done too by those scientists from the uh, global north going to you know places in either Africa South America you know the global south and then um, this concept of parachute science which is essentially scientists from these really wealthy uh, western nations going to uh, the global south doing research there but not involving the local people that live in those countries that they do their research in. And oftentimes it's research either related to conservation or in species that live mm -hmm. in those areas. So these are like, it's a place where people, where, you know, the um, people who live there are interacting with this environment and yet they're not getting any of this research being given to them or any credit if they're helping out with, the research or not mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely and and um I, I know people try to compensate certain indigenous cultures with money right but it's like that's like the only way that we see that like valuable like recompensation for like taking land is like giving money and it's like is that really relevant um and also this idea um that you're saying of just um you know, parachuting in and making decisions for people where you're not accountable for the decisions. I think that's like, or like for you're not um, going to face the repercussions of your decisions. You can parachute in and out, right? So I think that's another like big area relevant to what we're talking about of just people maybe should be the people that will suffer the repercussions of the decision should make the decisions in this context um, of conservation and art. But we have like these ideas of experts in both in both fields, right? And so what how do you, you know, reconcile that like, you know, to bring in the community and to to like really acknowledge like variation in the contexts and the different meanings in different contexts like how do you have these global experts right um versus like having local experts um that you know make decisions that affect them and nobody else you know I think I think one example of like how conservation can be done to include uh like local folks is um in this this national park called Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique and it was um, one of the big goals from this park is to involve local people in the like science that goes on here and like, the conservation decisions that go on here and the um, like the protection of the species that live here. So um, they'll, you know, recruit people from like towns nearby and like villages surrounding the park to to come in and act as like prevent poachers from coming in. Um, and they also have you know, local scientists doing work there. And so it's definitely more focused on involving the community in what goes on within the park. 
Um, the creation of the park was also uh, occurred like with some communication with like folks who actually live there, right? Folks who actually have some stake in what goes on and what um, what the outcomes are going to be from that national park. And I think it's provided a lot of opportunities for like young people to get involved in science, which we always love to see. And it's like one of the most biodiverse national parks in the African continent, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, t- community engagement is is so key. And um, there's so many examples of it not being done well. Um, but I think what it in evaluating these, I think um, I, I would say a few different things, which probably crosses like discipline, disciplines and disciplinary boundaries. Because, I mean, first of all, I always look at um, where's the power and where's the money. So, you know, Money, money is important in a lot of ways. Um, you can't, you don't want to just be paying communities off, but you know, who in conservation we're using and in museums, we're using a lot of grants. So who got the grant? How are they sort of allocating this money and how are people being credited as the experts? And when did they bring those people in? Were they there from the beginning from the ground up to build this project? So it actually reflects what the communities want, or is it just something that someone is trying to do for their own good? And how, how is the power then allocated within that as well? You know, do community members have um, real power to make change or, and make decisions in this project or, or whatever? And so so those are the kinds of ways, I think, to sort of sniff out the authenticity of community partnerships and collaborations. Um, because Because unfortunately, that's really what we have to do because so many of these projects like we're talking about are just you know, sort of using usually Western centric approaches. And in conservation, that's often going into other countries, telling them these are the materials and the only materials that are, that are going to keep your thing safe. And the only place to get that is in the West where you can't ship it or it's just prohibitively expensive. So not using local materials, even just on a basic level um, or not having an understanding of cultural values again. Um, so I, I, I think those are the kinds of things that, um, I'm always looking for for like proper community engagement, but all of that takes time and you really need to build trust and build relationships because you don't, you know, you don't know what is actually needed until you're both sort of talking to each other um, for kind of a long concerted amount of time. So in the end, collaboration is is labor. Yeah. And I, and I do worry like a big problem with, with scientific colonialism is this like efficiency problem where I think that I think everyone acknowledges that many different perspectives are going to be better but there's there's this drive to make decisions quickly and efficiently and like that always just leads to this sort of like um totalitarian decision making process of who you know um usually who's already in power will kind of win in that um but I just think about in general, like this, these relics of of colonialism, uh, and just the sense of do we need to destroy things to preserve them? Um, and I think this is something I think about a lot in science too, because you know, um, if a, if a, um, a species is going extinct, right? Like Anika, you probably know this. Like people will go out and try to collect some of the last species of that um and put them in a museum right and so it's like we are really directly engaged in in the environment even though we want to think we're separate and sometimes like for the worst um in the name of 
preserving and so like how do you do you think we can go about not being destructive in our preservation and conservation efforts that's an interesting Jess and I think that kind of ties back to what we were saying earlier about how much conservation focuses on the past Mm -hmm. and like oh we made a mistake let's try to go back to before the species was endangered but there isn't as much of a focus on let's not have the species go become endangered to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the preventative thing, totally. Well, I mean, in, in museums, we call that salvage collecting, salvage anthropology, um, which was done so much in the 19th century in particular, um, because indigenous uh communities were seen as about to be destroyed. And so there were a lot of people, anthropologists and ethnologists sort of swooping in to collect all of the sort of material material objects um, because they assumed that this was a dying race, maybe not acknowledging that they were being actively killed in a genocide. Um, And so, and so, so that's certainly part of our history. And then when those communities did not die off of course and we have native communities now we sort of have created stereotypes of like the quote noble savage um or you know there's sort of positive and negative connotations to that um so so i think that that's incredibly important um preservation thinking about history and colonialism preservation has been used as a justification and still is to go into um, different countries take things and say we can preserve it better in our country the british museum is the biggest sort of loudest um loudly criticized by this the elgin marbles from the parthenon are you know still in the british museum and really need to be returned um but we're starting to see that benin bronzes were really controversially um taken uh looted um and are now being returned um so and there's a worldwide movement for that. So repatriation is a huge, um, and I would say the minimal first step of decolonization. And we're starting to see that much more. But in the U.S., that really started in 1990 with the passage of the North American Grave Protections Repatriation Act. So it's been happening, but it's gaining steam for a lot of different cultures. So in some ways, we can think of that as the reparative work that's starting to happen. But um I do think that's really just the beginning um, and and it's very minimal. So, so it's something that we can't just say we're doing it. And and so we've undone a lot of damage because it's really just one step. Yeah. I think that's a a really interesting point. Like the return of objects, which I think is a pretty direct parallel to the return of of land. Um, I know that something that uh, some groups are doing, I saw a great talk at the California native plant society conference this past October and I don't remember the name of the person who gave the talk. Um, I could find it if we want to include it in like the, the podcast notes. But um, in this talk, they they talked about a program uh, that was directed toward uh, getting indigenous kids um, back into like uh, native habitats, essentially, and involving them in the process of restoration, restoring those habitats and um like I talked about earlier, creating more of a sense of place and connection to to the habitat. Um, and I feel like that that kind of thing is um, is going to be really, really helpful in getting 
more kids involved in like in their environments and outdoors. Um, living in Southern California, I can see that a lot of a lot of young folks aren't aren't involved in the outdoors, and there are like structural reasons for that, absolutely. But I feel like programs like that could help um, create more ownership at like a local scale. Um, governmentally, I think it's going to be like a, a longer slog, I guess, to get um, to yeah get Indigenous folks their land back. But on a local scale, that might be a good a good strategy. Um, there's also this this program called the Thirty by Thirty Objective. Have y'all heard of that? Okay, I also heard a lot about this at the CNPS conference. Um, so in this uh, this objective, it's this uh, global initiative uh, to designate 30% of the globe's uh, land and ocean areas as protected areas by the year 2030. So 30% by 2030. Um, and so over 50 countries have agreed to this uh, objective, including the United States. And so we're moving toward protecting more land from degradation. And um, in the U.S., there appears to be a, um, a push to work with tribal landowners and tribal leaders to ensure that this protection is like protecting their their uh, needs as well. Um, so to to your point that there might not be enough protection of land and protection of species from becoming endangered, we at least have that to to think about and to push toward. Yeah, all this is like so interesting. And since we are coming up to the end of our hour together, I guess as a final wrap up question, I'm just curious to hear because I know I learned a lot, I'm sure you did as well, Jess, just what the two of you have learned from each other and how you think you can take lessons from this con- this conversation about conservation into your own work in the future. Yeah, I mean, we're, there's so many overlaps that I'm on the one hand, not surprised our goals on a really large scale are the same. But on the other hand, we do think of um, art and culture and nature and and biology is so separate which is absolutely a western construct right like we can have a whole discussion about other ways of of thinking about that but at least um for me that's certainly how it's been and um so i think one of the most sort of interesting areas of exploration that i would love to think about is what we've and is what my research is based on so i guess that makes sense is really thinking about our preservation value systems really broadly as we've been talking about because i think what i'm finding is that our beliefs as a society reflect what we preserve when it comes to any sort of preservation so what does it mean for us to think about those overlaps and i'm just wondering like what can we take away from that like i was talking about umbrella species like that just seems like a really great concept that we could think about in art conservation that might be more effective so what are the ways that we can sort of um analyze maybe societal impact more broadly to sort of make our work more effective which seems really exciting to me yeah i think i had some really similar takeaways anisha i feel like the i haven't thought about art very much for a long time um but it was really nice to get back into it. My mom was an artist growing up, so I went to a lot of her classes with her. And um, so it was really nice to to start thinking about art in this in this light and in this context. Because as we as we said, art and um like environment are so important to our culture and our society. And I'm just reminded of how I don't know, like how art is really, you know, created by humans, which are created by our environment and by the ecosystem and by evolution. So really they're like completely linked and it's just kind of in this chain of um, 
of like evolution of, of humans and of thought and of society and then of art. And so I, yeah, I'm excited to think about those things. I'm really looking forward to thinking more about decolonizing, decolonizing, uh, conservation biology in the future. And as you said, Anisha, um, focusing more on like the needs of people who are living within ecosystems, um, indigenous people as, um, you know, maybe the biggest tenant there, um, but focusing on those those principles and thinking less about like, you know, data-driven, science-based, like publication-based perspectives, because I think that's a lot of what's driving our conservation practices today. So yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing all of your ideas and thoughts. It's been so great to talk to you. Yeah, agreed. That sounds exciting. And I look forward to like hearing more from what comes from from your thoughts too. Likewise, likewise. Awesome. Well, thank you both. And we'll we'll end it here. Unfortunately, I feel like we could go for hours longer, but it's been a pleasure uh, learning a lot from both of you. And uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm like so happy that we had this conversation. And thank you again, both of you, Annika and Anisha, for joining us today. And um, I lied. I had one more question, uh, which is a quick <laughs> one, but. Um, do either you have either websites or social media that you want to just shout out and we'll leave this in the episode, but we'll also conclude this in our show notes as well that you want to promote? Yeah, I would say my my most professional account is my Twitter and I'm not recording it right. Recording as we are now, Twitter is in some liminal space, but um, you can find me at Anisha Gupta underscore. Um, yeah, I have. I'm not super big on social media, unfortunately, but I have a Google site that I'll um I'll give y'all a link to, to put in the show notes if anybody wants to, to reach out to me. Okay, we're back. <laughs> we just had one more question to add because we started talking after the recording, but we're we're just talking about why do we conserve things in general? Is it just some kind of way that we we feel the need to immortalize ourselves as a species in all these different forms or or why do we do this at all? <laughs> And I, I think that if you're in conservation of any kind, we should be asking ourselves this question all the time, because why are we conserving things? It takes a lot of resources. Like we're talking about like massive environmental impact for storage of objects. We're talking about huge financial implications and like we should be able to answer the question of why. Um, and so I think what I was talking about earlier about human interactions, like that's why I think that's crucial, but even, even more so like for for our conservation, it's like, why objects? Like, that's a Western construct for sure, because there are many cultures that don't preserve objects, but really value skill traditions. So maybe artistic practice is passed down and the objects themselves are kind of seen as irrelevant. And so, I mean, does that answer the question? I don't know. We're still preserving things. And so um, I think one question that I try to answer is like, is this a universal human feeling of wanting to preserve things, even if it's not in the same way as um in museums but in sort of the other ways because i think we see that with oral history that's passed down um through generations of families or um you know all sorts of different types of preservation and so i don't know is that just a human impulse to want to you know see ourselves reflected through time i think that's kind of a beautiful notion i just think we need to question how we go about it but i don't know i really like that very saccharine I don't know <laughs> I like that too I feel like it's um kind of intrinsic to yeah as you said who we are as humans 
like how we function in the world is, is so informed by our past and like our ancestry um and even like the history of other people throughout the world right who were not you know more than very very distantly related to um and i think it's honestly a similar concept for for conservation biology like who who doesn't get sad when you hear that you know um how many thousands of species was it have gone extinct in the past 400 years that like were leading to so many extinctions um that's i think an inherently a loss even if you know it's like some little species of bug that had zero impact on on humans right um the the evolution of those species was like occurred for a reason and um took you know probably millions of years and then to see humans come through and and wipe out so many species i think is devastating so i i think in some way it's it's just a way to to help us forgive ourselves for what we're doing to the planet maybe and i struggle a lot with um like do we want to focus on uh preserving individual species like that little bug who maybe went extinct and didn't have that big of an impact on the environment because i do believe that they have intrinsic value or do we want to focus on species who are going to help more species or help human populations um yeah it's a really hard question and i i think that it's i think that the it gets to this idea of like humans want to want to help and want to like be bigger than ourselves I guess I think we're all pretty aware that Mm -hmm. humans aren't going to be on the planet forever probably and um at least for me I I want to make sure that like we leave a a reasonably diverse planet behind after we go (laughs) well and I don't know exactly how this ties in but I always I always sort of in my head counter this idea with um like uh the Mimbrous people, for example, in the Southwest uh, of the U.S., um, talk about letting objects deteriorate and sort of making way for human creativity. Like you don't feel so sort of burdened by what you're seeing and it gives you a chance, um, especially around like Mimbrous pottery, like you create sort of from yourself and from your current context um, and it gives you space for creativity. And so I think that brings me comfort because we're not going to preserve everything. And even like, should we preserve everything? I think that brings me, I don't know, my own life. I've just thought about that so much more of like sometimes loss creates space for something new. And I was thinking about that in an environmental context too. Um, I think at one point, Annika, maybe this was um, when we talked earlier about like creating these days, you know, with climate change sort of um, having ecosystems that are um, make more sense really for today rather than sort of an ecosystem of the past because of all the changes that have taken place. Like we need more resilient ecosystems or, or you know, th- things change. Um, and I would imagine even if we didn't have sort of huge climate change impacts like we do, things are still going to be changing. So I guess what I'm thinking is really it's like a balance of holding on to the past but again, being so rooted in the present that you are not, that you're sort of creating a future that makes sense to you today and, and sort of always allowing for change. Maybe that's, maybe that's where I land. <laughs> I don't know, incorporating past, present and future through change. Uh, I don't know. I Yeah, that's, that's a really beautiful way to look at it. To talk about the CNPS conference again, I remember one talk by 
somebody from the San Jose area who, again, I could share their name in the, the podcast notes, but they talked about a restoration of this, like a, a lagoon or a lake area that was being used a lot by people. And instead of using a really aggressive, like herbicide focused, um, like heavy seeding, planting a lot of shrubs, kind of a restoration approach, they, you know, planted a few things and then let those like larger species, like a few oak trees and maybe um, some uh, ceanothus shrubs uh, or yeah, uh, larger species, right? They let those foster the development of a new ecosystem, right? So like birds brought in seeds of other little shrubs and then those shrubs provided, provided a nice environment to facilitate the growth of little wildflowers or like native grasses. So we're kind of like helping along the way and creating a habitat that's going to be useful for people, but also like iteratively supported by the environment that's around it. Yeah. Like this question, like why conserve anything? Cause not to go on a existentialist crisis, <laughs> the sun's going to, you know, blow up and engulf the earth in several billion years. Like none of the work we're doing is going to last that long, even if the sun didn't, you know, expand and engulf the earth. So I don't know, I guess kind of what you were saying earlier, Anisha, maybe it is just a human thing, the either desire for nostalgia or wanting to create a future, or even as you mentioned, humans just like collecting stuff. So are we just collecting objects or species or environments? And I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, kind of what you said at the end, um, Annika, like art and I guess the conservation of art and ecosystems it really is just stemming from the evolution of humans and it's tying back to nature and are these things all just mirrors like pointed back at us to reflect our values of a given time you know like (laughs) is there such thing as intrinsic value like or are we actually like secretly assigning it you know like um so yeah, I mean, <laughs> we can <laughs> we can get really philosophical with this, but now we are over an hour, and so we will officially cut it off, I suppose. But maybe we'll have a part two. <laughs> <laughs> so that was an amazing episode. I love how we could not stop talking uh, for the viewers that didn't get access to our post-recording sessions. We tried we tried to hit record every time we'd start talking about something cool, but we just could not stop. Um, so stay tuned for potentially a part two. But Yeah, I mean, we pretty much had to stop because you had to go to the restroom. <laughs> but I mean, these are such interesting questions that we're talking about especially towards the end like why do we conserve things whether you know it's trying to preserve our history or trying to preserve something for the future or you know as I mentioned jokingly maybe we just like collecting things and we're no different from birds of like shiny objects I don't know but you know does it matter to conserve anything if we know billions from years from now sun's gonna grow expand and engulf the earth and everything we have conserved with it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's this like tendency to um, kind of like find things that represent us and our culture and try to conserve those because, you know, they extend at least past our, our individual lives and maybe past our civilizations. Um, and so in some sense, 
uh, it's a way to immortalize ourselves through these like other things, you know? Yeah, thinking about it in terms of like species, why some species are conserved and considered, you know, the charismatic megafauna over others. I mean, you know, looking at things like donkeys, they kind of become the representative of UCR's campus. Or we think of, in general, when you think of Africa, you're thinking of elephants and like lions, but not maybe acacia trees. But like, you're not thinking about the native grasses on the African savanna. You're not thinking about insects for the most part. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because, um, you know, when we were talking about how to engage like communities in the present moment, um, you know, a lot of times, it, you know, everyone in these kind of most people live in disturbed ecosystems now or what we'd call disturbed where invasive species are doing really well. Um, and so those are the, the types of animals like people are interacting with the most. Um, you know, I did a insect poetry workshop with kids today and the, the insect all of them could think of first was cockroaches, <laughs> you know? So, you know, these, these are the types of, of uh, animals that like people interact with on a daily basis and like can find a connection to nature with. And yet, um, you know, biologists have this ideal of um, preserving native species um, or species that were here. I don't know how many, Years ago, I don't know how we decide what time point exactly to conserve. Um, yeah, we talked about that a little. Do you remember what they were saying about the time point? Ooh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Either. I know with art, yeah, with art, it's like 100 years, right? You're trying to preserve something for like 100 years at least. Mm -hmm. um, but it, I guess... Um, you know, with art, it's not so much the case where you're trying to like keep um, a time point preserved um, and extend that into the future. You're really just trying to like um, take little snapshots as things change, right? And 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 reflect that change in the things you preserve. Whereas with uh, conservation, it seems like sort of like not allowing for, at least with biological conservation, it seems like not allowing for much change and trying to preserve the type of biodiversity that we think of as a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, though, Annika did mention, if I recall correctly, kind of having to pick and choose eventually, because, you know, we know with climate change, areas are getting hotter than they have been for hundreds of years, or having different patterns in precipitation. I mean, it's inevitable we're going to lose these species. So there's there we're, there's no going back to, you know, before the industrial revolution. It's that's that's just what it is. But so, so like in a sense, there is still change. But I think it's so interesting with conservation in terms of art and biology. There's still this idea of, I don't know, like keeping this snapshot of time, even as it marches forward. Yeah, and it's really hard to argue with that, um, you know, as a as a biologist, like we're sort of, I guess, trained and I think for good reason to like um, really cherish biodiversity. And so I think we look back to like when an ecosystem seemed balanced and diverse. And, um, you know, E.O. Wilson talks about uh, our biophilia, if you know that word. Mm -hmm. And so it almost feels like... Um, we do that because biodiversity is inherently beautiful to us. And it makes me feel like, you know, as we talk about how arbitrary um, 
our decisions are of what time point to preserve. I think that the conclude or like what what follows from that is that it becomes about aesthetics, right? Like if there is no uh, true like correct time point to preserve, that's like uh, I don't know the healthiest. Maybe it's the healthiest, but I think we define that in terms of our aesthetic values ultimately. Not to mention, you know, as a topic we've t- discussed in this past episode, who decides that aesthetic? And so much of conservation is rooted in colonialism, in Western European um, ideas about what's beautiful or what's worth preserving, which is so funny. Like we're talking, you know, about preserving landscapes untouched, quote unquote, untouched by humans, which like, you know, indigenous people have lived here centuries, thousands of years and have interacted with the environment. And same thing, I think, with art as well. I mean, just like what we consider fine art, like is often thought of as beautiful Renaissance paintings from Europe. But there's also beautiful works of art from other parts of the world, from Asia, from Africa, the Americas that have their own beauty that sure, it's not that hyper-realistic kind of style from Europe, but that does not mean that it's inherently less created by a less skilled artisan mm-hmm. it's so true and and i think there's like this other um problem that follows from you know what you were saying about like who gets to decide what gets preserved um who gets to decide what what is valuable really like because you know um we talked about different types of value and one that i think is is more often the type of value system than it should be is is the economic value um, or utility, right, is how we think of it. And so I think that's that's another way that um, that scientists can go into, you know, a natural area where indigenous people live even currently. This and I mean, this happens in tropical areas um, where they find a swath of land that could potentially have value to humans as far as medicine um, and preserve that for its potential economic or, or I guess, medicinal value. Um, But what they do is they preserve it and then manage it in a way that they see fit. And similar with um, what Anisha was saying with art, where they go into a place, they take the art from them, uh, you know, basically justifying it with, we know how to take care of it better. And I think that's like what we're doing with conservation and biology as well. Um, and so a major step in decolonization is is to not assume this um, stance of superiority in knowing how to take care of things, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. And I love how from talking to both of them, there is change, slow change perhaps, towards including more of just the local community there, whether it's through actually talking with the people living and you know breathing working in these environments or with the people who made the art themselves or from the culture of these artists Mm -hmm. and I think it's such an exciting future to see like you know maybe cockroaches are worth something after all same thing with whatever art you see around the street like street art to me I mean I love just walking around and seeing whatever murals are there it's not stuff you'll see at you know the met or something but it's there's still value in that even if it's not the quote-unquote fine art that you'll see 
Yeah, and I I think there there's something really like aesthetic about its transience and its change, you know, about graffiti or, you know, just trying to relish something while it exists in the present moment and trying to resist this need to possess and preserve, um, you know, and I think that's that would allow us to, you know, um, really prioritize the present more and the people in the present that are interacting with the things around them, whether it be art or the animals. Um, and that's really important, right? Because the present is all we're sure of, you know. And yet, as they mentioned, we try, we, you know, at least in art, Anisha was saying that people are obsessed with the past and the future. And so, um, you know, is it serving us to, to prepare for the future so much um, and not let people in the present interact with pieces of art or pieces of land, um, you know, because the future is uncertain, right? Well, as the past couple of years has shown us, mm -hmm. it's quite uncertain for sure. And at least for me, when I do art, I feel like so much of how I do art and what subjects I choose is influenced by my present state. It's a snapshot of who I am in the process of making a piece of art. And I know you do art as well, Jess. Do you feel that same way? Yeah, yeah, no, I do. Um, and I, 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 I have my art, I keep it and stuff. So it, it almost feels like I'm preserving it, right? But I have friends that will like do a piece of art and just like give it away. And like, and you know, I've had this, I've had other moments like this where like things that I, I use for self-preservation are lost. Like I have this, camera that had a lot of my experiences on it I never transferred it anywhere and it was lost I lost it it fell out of a hole in my pocket and I had like this realization that like how why am small I was this camera sorry it I was <laughs> like it was like a little point and shoot okay it was, but it was also a big pocket hole like a huge hole in my pocket um so <laughs> I lost it and I lost like every picture I took from my trip in Thailand. I had like really great animals, all these things. And I just had this moment where I was like, I was really devastated. And I had to think about like why I was so devastated. That And, you know, it was the same thing where it's like all these things that um, I won't remember that I needed to be like stored somewhere external from my mind was lost. And it was like, oh, no, like I might just have those memories lost forever. And so I, I, I feel like that anxiety is sort of like driving like why we try to like collect things and preserve things because we want to like exist in the past it, when the future thinks of us as a memory, <laughs> you know? You know, it's funny that you brought that up because especially, you know, with smartphones and stuff at concerts, you always see people recording mm -hmm. and like, I'm guilty of that. But like, the truth is, I don't look back. Yes. Also for the audience, I'm laughing now because Joshua's here and giving us the middle finger for everyone who do does that. But anyway, um, but yeah, what's the point in doing that? Because I know I don't, I'm not going to look back on this video with terrible audio and terrible video quality. And yet I still do it. And the problem, too, with that is, like, you're not actually paying attention in the present moment, right? So there's always this, like, trade-off between, like, being really present and experiencing something fully um, versus, you know, prioritizing your future self, enjoying the memory, you know? So I, I think that's just more reason to 
I mean, it's more of like we have to decide like what we've what we value the present, the future, the past um, and just make sure like what we're doing is in line with like what we what we value and and really ask ourselves like, should we, you know, prioritize a future at the expense of our present? You know, you get people like Elon Musk that are like, you know, our uh our planet is screwed so we all have to just prepare right now to go to mars and it's like what are the political implications of being so future oriented it kind of leads to like an abandonment of the present um and so like you know i think it's important to not do that and to prioritize all these problems that are like currently plaguing us you know i think you know i think i don't know there's benefits to think about the past and the present but you're right I don't think we focus as much on or we think a lot about the past and the future but we don't focus on the present as much as we should and it's kind of I think just a focusing on like well this is what has been and this is what could be so let's figure out how to you know make things better for the possibilities based on what we learned about the past and that's kind of how we figured out what to do in the present but there's really just no being Mm -hmm. yeah and and I mean just like how we view time as linear is in and of itself sort of um maybe like limiting us because I I have this collaborator who's an indigenous scholar and he says in his tribe the Gaitsan people um they like view time as non-linear like and circular and so like the pre like there is no distinction between all of them because like you're saying we are we are the product of our past and using that to plan for our future so we're always like being and becoming all in the same moment and so um how how this relates to conservation and art maybe i'm getting a little bit too philosophical at this point but um but i think that like taking on these different kinds of like epistemological systems or ways of knowing right like can really change like how we value things and how we act to preserve those those values and be in line with those you know it's interesting to me um kind of connecting the present or not the present the past and the future in kind of a weird way which we kind of brought up about with the whole you know splashing things on paintings with um what was it just stop oil or yeah. yeah so like these paintings were made you know hundreds of years ago like van gogh's sunflowers um and like other works way before we had when climate change was like an issue so it's like taking something from the past in a sense to use and changing its meaning its message for the future because from now on i mean you know you go on wikipedia you're gonna see the whole like you know stop oil now incident attached to those paintings forever and ever and so the meaning of those paintings have changed permanently yeah that's so true and it's and it's just like you know this this idea that we're talking about of like preserving objects um and being so object oriented i think it's um you know it constrained or it it doesn't really account for like how meaning changes like you're talking about because you know you could have the same object that like a hundred years later means something else and that meaning is often like really um 
created by the cultural context as that changes right and with um with species you know we have these individual species like objects of art um but we also have these selective forces that we can't control these abiotic conditions like increased precipitation you know warming of the temperature um and so that will always be the context that's going to change the meaning of them and like their importance in an ecosystem for example or with a piece of art its importance in like reflecting the culture of the time and so um you know even though we try to preserve these objects as static like these objects are um you know not necessarily contained in in just them themselves they are like they are just like mirrors for our own um cultural values to be reflected off of and that you know inevitably changes so it's really interesting so in the end, are we conserving anything then? If it all changes anyway, either in meaning or with species, just the natural process of evolution. Yeah. No, that that is so true, right? It's like um, those objects are never the same. Like, and I mean, there's a there's this book um, by Deleuze and Gartari, these for, uh, philosophers, and they, it's called Repetition and Difference. And it starts out by being like, there's this, this book Don Quixote right like it was rewritten word for word exactly the same but like years later and they argue that now it's a richer text even though it's word for word right it's like the objects didn't change but everything around it has changed so much so it's literally just not even perceived the same way as if the object changed so I guess it's kind of a weird well I don't know you've heard of the ship of Theseus right yeah yeah it's kind of like that the whole like if you replace all the parts of a ship but it's still the same ship right you're just replacing things over time Mm -hmm. is it still the same ship is it just is the ship itself the idea or is it all its individual components Mm -hmm. yeah it's like what does it represent yeah Um. so i guess in the end (laughs) we still haven't really answered our question if any of this matters or not (laughs) but maybe that doesn't matter (laughs) yeah i mean it only matters in so much as we give it meaning right and we're doing that all the time right um so we just we get to decide like what meaning we want to give things and how much we want to allow things to change you know i like these um controversial acts on art that we talked about the just stop oil or the blm graffiti on the uh confederate monuments i think that these are really um important like these disturbances to create attention in the status quo of our culture and to be like okay like now that there's this tension how do we want to resolve it you know because we can we can choose to resolve it in a way that like propels us in the right direction culturally so and I mean right direction is of course like relative but I I would you know hope towards equity and like life affirming (laughs) actions (laughs) yeah that would be the ideal but here we go again talking about the future (laughs) (laughs) I know right so I guess just maybe it is (laughs) just part of our human nature yeah, right. To plan Maybe for it the is. future. <laughs> to plan for the future, to, you know, conserve things. Mm-hmm. Like I said, maybe no different than happy birds that keep shiny objects. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of like what Annika said towards the end, just that art itself is, it's our, it's a product of our, of our evolution, mm-hmm. the evolution of humans. So 
maybe all of this just ties down to what it means to be a human. Uh, hi, uh, I just wanted to jump in here. Are you guys doing a recording? Yeah, yeah. I, it's me. I'm sorry. I should introduce myself. I'm Stan from Stan Stellar Salads. Um, I just kind of wanted to jump in here. I heard you guys were talking about like the whole soup on the whole paintings. And well, you know, I'm a big conservative man myself in that I like to conserve things, primarily nature and artwork and whatnot. But uh, I got to tell you, that really gets me going. And I tell you why, because I think soups dominated the art world for long too long. You know, what was it? Warhol, the painted Campbell's. And frankly, now that they're just throwing it up on paintings to make another meeting i mean i've been growing salads since i've been uh, just knee high to a frog and i've been doing my part to throw salads on any painting that i think should own it and you know i take my salads and i throw them to conserve neighborhoods you know like this should be salad land and the fact that it's not well well i tell you what that makes me matter than a rutabaker and a lettuce loaf <laughs> I'll, I'll see myself out this podcast was brought to you by SciComm at UCR. You can find out more about us at SciComm.ucr.edu. And special thanks to our producer, Joshua Rieger, our wonderful guests, and you listeners. We'll see you next time on our journey across, across the, the climb. climb.